Welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian, and joining me in the studio is Gassia Abgarian. She's a judge of the Superior Court of Orange County in California. Welcome to the program, Gassia. Thank you for having me. You're here under very difficult circumstances. Uh, we all know what is taking place in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh or the result of a massive large-scale attack by Azerbaijan on September 19 that uh, was ended with uh, a ceasefire agreement 24 hours later. On September 24, the Lachin Corridor was opened and we saw the mass exodus of the population of Artsakh, uh, the total ethnic cleansing of the indigenous population. And you have been working, you're an advisor for the Center for Truth and Justice. You were established back in 2020 after the 44-day war, and you're collecting evidence, very crucial, critical work that I believe is not being done by anybody else at the moment in the country. So, uh, Garcia, if you will, could you please tell us uh, first a little bit about the Center's uh, mission and objectives and what you're doing now today? Thank you for having me. The first thing I want to do is, if you don't mind, I'd like to put the right terminology to what you just said, okay? It's not mass exodus, okay? Mass exodus is the factual reality. These are mass deportations due to Aliyev's intent to commit genocide. The purpose of genocide and the intent of genocide is the annihilation of an entire group, of an entire ethnic group. Uh, and when we talk about Nagorno-Karabakh, this, this is the Armenian ethnic indigenous group that has lived on their ancestral lands for millennium. And um, this is the first time ever that they have been forcefully removed. So this is mass deportations. Um, this is genocide. Um, this is the annihilation of an entire indigenous ethnic group. So uh, I just want to put the correct terminology in place. Um, this ethnic cleansing is just an element of genocide. Um, the it, it's it, if I'm sorry, I'm a judge and I do criminal work. I've done criminal work my entire life. If you will, I'll give the example. Um, there's murder, okay, and then underneath murder, there's assault with deadly weapon. There's there's manslaughter. There's there's terrorist threats. Those are all elements that fall under the bigger crime known as murder. In this case, the crime is genocide. Under the genocide is starvation, blockade, bombing and shelling, the killing of the civilian population, um, and, and terrorizing them to the point where, for the first time, these people had to make a decision. Do we stay on our ancestral lands and face death, mass death, or do we save the lives of our children and our families? So that's just a... I just wanted to put that out there. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm thankful and grateful that you did uh, because this is an important conversation that we have to have and we have to keep pushing in the public discourse of the international community because, you know, watching the images of these people leaving and in a matter of days, people don't just get up and leave and walk away with nothing. So I was there, and let me let me just give you a little bit background. Um, I've been an advisor to the Center for Truth and Justice from the day it was established. It was a response to the mass atrocities that we were watching live during the 44-day war of um, a maiming, slaughtering, killing Armenians by Azerbaijani troops. A bunch of lawyers in the United States came together and said, someone's got, got to collect this evidence if we're ever going to bring anybody to justice. 
that's where I come in. I understand evidence. I understand how it needs to be collected. So I became the teacher, if you will. Um, we gathered law students in Armenia and Artsakh from five different law schools, um, state universities, uh, the Russian university, the American university, the French university, and Artsakh State University. We uh, filtered through the advanced law students who have the ability to think outside the box because you need critical thinking. And we started via Zoom teaching them how to collect firsthand testimonial evidence supported by forensic evidence. And we've been doing that work ever since. Um, every time we think we've covered what we need to cover, a new set of atrocities take place because the Aliyev regime has the ultimate intent of uh, they want the Armenian lands without the Armenians. That's what genocide is, okay? I happen to have come here literally days before the mass deportation started by chance. It wasn't that I got on a flight and flew here. I was coming here for personal reasons, family reasons as well. And the day I arrived, it was the first day when um, Armenians crossed the Lachim Corridor. So I got in a car with some of our staff members from here and drove down to Goris in order to see with my own eyes and not rely on third-party reporting to understand what was really happening. I just want to point out that we have we had an office in Artsakh, just like we have an office here. And um, we had to literally, right as the, even through the bombardments and the shelling in Artsakh, our folks who were both victims um, were still continuing to gather evidence. And we told them to stop because their lives matter more to us. We were monitoring the safe, their safe exit. And the good news is they did all make it out safely. They all suffer from not just heartbreak and misery, um, they've lost everything, everything they've ever had. Um, homes, heirlooms, cars, farms, animals, uh, they left behind their grandparents and grand great-grandparents and their cemeteries, their churches. Um, and they literally left with a, a bag of some documents. I'm going to ask you for a minute to take off your judge hat. Because as somebody who has been in that uh, realm for, for many years, you've seen, I'm sure, the gamut of all kinds of uh, inhumanity. As an Armenian, as a, as a human being, to witness that mass exodus deportation, uh, because you were there, and I know that some of our staff who were there are still struggling witnessing that because it's, it's almost a continuation of what was started in 1915. And that fear starts creeping up back you know, on your back thinking the game isn't over. And now Turkey's junior partner is continuing that intent to annihilate the Armenian population, the indigenous Armenians off of their lands. When I got to Gornizor, which is this really narrow one lane, if I may describe it for people who weren't there. On the sides of Gornizor, on the side of the road, were all of these cars of Armenians from Armenia, literally waiting for their loved ones to cross. And I saw some of them running towards each other and embracing 
I felt like I was watching my grandmother's survival from 1915 because I know the story very well. I lived with my, my grandmother was born in 1900. I lived with her. She passed away in 1992. I don't know the stories from books. I know the stories from her. I have the pictures. I've actually written her entire story. Watching those scenes were, if you turned it into black and white, it was 1915 all over again, except back then they were walking the desert or coming out in caravans, in carriages. Now it was in cars. So turn it into black and white. It's the same scene and it's the same intent. I actually decided, told the driver to go to Goris. I didn't want to stop in Gornizor because no one has any business to be there because they need space to get out and you feel like you're infringing on them. Because people said to me, can you film it? No, I can't film it. I can't stick a camera to people's, in people's faces in the most painful scene of their lives. I mean, people who were crossing the Lachin Corridor were bringing their dead bodies with them, their sons and children and family members who died during the bombing and the shelling. They were bringing the dead bodies out with them so they could bury them in Armenia. How do you stand there and say, hey, let me film this or let me, you know, let me ask what's going on? So the work that you're doing is that much more valuable and critical right now to gather that evidence, to gather that testimony. Because in 1915, during the genocide, we did not have the opportunity to do that. And it was only later on uh, in the middle of the 20th century when people started thinking, oh, we need to record the memories and the testimonies through oral history. But right now, um, what we need to do, we need to compile this evidence. For what purpose? So let me tell you a few things that are, if I may, in some ways, what has happened in Artsakh is so much worse, not the genocide, but in 1915, we had missionaries, ambassadors, foreigners, who Germans, Americans, we've all read the books, um, who were there documenting, taking photographs and writing memos through the consulates that documented so much that we were not able to document firsthand. We did it later on. This time around, there was no one in Artsakh from outside. No one was allowed in, no journalists, no missionaries, no diplomats, no international organizations. You, we all know about the orphanages that were created during the genocide and those missionaries and foreigners, whether they were Austrian, German, Americans, Brits, French, you know, Italians. We have all of their documentation this time in Artsakh. The only people who got to witness and perhaps document as it was happening were the Armenians who were the victims who were trying to save themselves in the bunkers and the basements. So in that way, it was atrocious that we couldn't get that firsthand testimony. But let me go back to why CFTJ, Center for Truth and Justice, was created. We didn't create ourselves just to document for purposes of accountability and court cases. We also document, one of the things that's so painful to me, and this is my personal weight that I carry with me, when I was training students in Artsakh and students in Armenia, I would try to impress upon them why it is critical 
to document the testimonies of people in Artsakh or from Artsakh in their own dialect. Hmm. Because I would give them the example of, if in 50 years Artsakh doesn't exist, don't you want your children and grandchildren to know what language was spoken, how was life lived, what was happening to them? Three years from the day I was teaching this, this became a reality. Whether we like it or not, Artsakh today, as we know it, does not exist. There are no Armenians on that land. Do we have a right of return? Yes. Do we have proprietary rights? Yes. Is that going to happen? I don't know. How is it going to happen? I have no idea. But for practical purposes, what we documented is all there is that shows how the Babigs and the Dadigs existed for thousands of years on their land, what their traditions were, how they spoke, and how they lived. So the documentation we do has that long-term of value of storytelling so that people know what Artsakh was. I don't know what Artsakh is going to be, but we documented what Artsakh was. Gassia, during the 2020 war, we saw a lot of video images uh, emerging on different social platforms from uh, Telegram to TikTok of these uh, horrific war crimes that were being committed from decapitation to summary executions, all of that. This time around, um, although it was a very short, very intense bombardment that lasted 24 hours, and there were villages and regions in Artsakh that were completely separated or there was no ability to even get there. And just to come back to what you were saying, this total blackout of information was infuriating for us too as journalists because we couldn't get the information out. And the journalists who were working there were traumatized themselves because they were actually victims of this uh of this situation. Uh, this time around, it seems that the Azerbaijanis have been a little bit more careful. Have you noticed that? Have you been experiencing that? Or or do you have already some, um, because you're not only collecting testimony from the survivors, you're also documenting the war crimes. The war crimes. So <clears throat> let me differentiate the tactics that Azerbaijan used this time versus the mm -hmm. 2020 war. This time around, they didn't slaughter they didn't behead, they weren't cutting off ears, they didn't use mercenaries, they didn't have to. What they did was they capitalized on the terror that they created in 2020. Let's not forget, 24 hours of shelling and bombing the peaceful population, by the way, is in itself a horror, and it's a war crime under all laws of the world. But what they did was they circulated on social media um, beheadings and atrocities so there was this initial wide, as I was flying into Armenia, I was getting nonstop, you know, a, a thousand people were slaughtered in some village. Another town was completely leveled. Um, they're raping children, they're beheading children. And people were saying to CFTJ and to me, why aren't you guys saying anything about this? And I kept saying, we have to corroborate it. We have to verify it. And as we were doing this, we realized these are all atrocities that were filmed and exhibited in 2020. They were circulating it this time around for one purpose and one purpose only to terrorize the nation. And when I say the nation, I don't just mean the Armenians in Gharapal, I mean Armenians all over the world. So that putting so much fear and terror into these people's hearts and minds that they had 
they had to escape. When I got to Gori's, I was able to find heads of villages and towns that related to these um, stories. stories. And I tried to track it down. I was like, who told you this? Where did you get the story? Whose children are they? And the more we tracked it down, the more we realized it was pure hearsay, pure humor, rumor. But they did their job by circulating horror on social media so that these people, um, humans need to live. I mean, human <laughs> beings, and when I was there and I would, you know, we would hug and, you know, embrace each other from just a human perspective. And I said to them, whomever I spoke to, I said, first you're human beings, then you're Armenians. Human beings need to survive. And if you don't survive, you can't tell the story of being an Armenian. So of course these people had to leave. These people were running for their lives and for their children's lives. Yeah, that psychological terror certainly worked uh, on the nation. Uh, I can't tell you how many people reached out to me saying, "Did you, were you able to uh, find out if, if this is true, if that is true? And, and, you know, my journalistic instincts kick in and I always say, I, I can't corroborate, I can't say anything, I haven't seen any evidence, I haven't been told anything, there's no eyewitness accounts to this, and we just need to, to calm down for a second. But obviously, uh, you know, the people of Artsakh, this is a very personal opinion. I think we're abandoned. They are abandoned by the world, by their leaders, by the Armenian government, by all of us. Uh, we all failed. We all failed miserably. We all failed. Yes. When I say we, Armenians and the, the diaspora is a part of the international community. Okay. Let me put it this way. Two months ago, uh, Luis Moreno Ocampo uh, published his opinion that the blockade itself is genocide. Subsequent to his opinion, other than a lot of news outlets covering that story and other legal minds coming to his side, hearings were held in the U.S. on the House side and the Senate side. The Western um, countries um, were put on notice. Under the Genocide Convention, state parties, uh, when they are aware that genocide is ensuing, under the convention, they have the responsibility to prevent. They all failed. When, you, when you're on notice and you fail to prevent, you become accomplice to it. Equally is the diaspora. The diaspora has been on notice. The diaspora has failed Artsakh, as well as the leadership in Artsakh. We all failed our people in Artsakh. Yes, we did, indeed. Coming back to the work that you're doing now, because uh, we're kind of all over the place, but I think it's it's a normal human reaction that we're having to bear witness to this genocide, this ethnic cleansing that's taking place uh, of our own people. How are the members of your staff having to deal <laughs> with collecting evidence from people uh, at the moment? Have you ramped up the number of people that are working? How fast does this have to be? Does it have to be within a certain time period? Uh, can you just explain sure. the little intricacies, if you will? So the first thing we did, um, we have staff in Armenia. Once our staff from Artsakh got into Armenia, we obviously spoke to all of them. Some of them, they're all trying to find housing. They're all trying to find a place to live. They're students. They need to go back to law school. They need to come to Yerevan to get registered at the law school in Armenia. Uh, and the and, and this law school is register, registering them, but finding housing in Yerevan, first of all, is extremely expensive. Housing is very limited, as you, we all know. 
Um, so asking our staff from Artsakh to keep doing the work they were doing with us or for us is um, is not is not acceptable. Is not okay. Some of them have called and said, "I want to work because when you work, you put your fear and anger and frustration into positive energy." Um, so we've given them all the time they want, but the Armenia staff, who is also extremely exhausted, needs more help. So we doubled our staff overnight. We did intensive training for 48 hours. We barely finished yesterday. As we finished um, the training, we were t starting to take testimony regardless. We also announced two phone numbers, kind of like a hotline that says to the people from Artsakh who are in Armenia, um, call this number. It's, this is not a hotline to find housing or jobs or getting situated. This is literally, if you've witnessed anything or you're a victim of any war crimes, please call this number. So we're getting those phone calls. And this time around, the evidence is disappearing really fast because these people are all over the place in Armenia. Finding them is very difficult. Even when we have leads to go find them is, is really tough because one day they're in one town, next day they've left to go find housing somewhere else. There's a contingency of them who want to leave the country, who want to go to Russia. Um, some of them just, it's too soon to talk to them. They're too traumatized to talk to right, us. And many of them don't even want to talk. I mean, they don't, but yeah. that's where our training comes in. Mm -hmm. We teach them tools and skills of how to get them to talk. That's why it's not everybody's job to do what we do. It takes a lot of understanding of victimology, uh, of creating trust. So it's a whole process. The reason I say time is limited is because the rights of these people um, need to be demanded almost immediately. Because if you let time go by, this becomes yesterday's story, both in the in the legal community as well as the political community. In the legal community as well. I mean, I understand it in the news cycle. I come from a, you know, again, from a journalistic perspective, and I know that the news cycle is 24 hours, and there's another catastrophe, calamity happening somewhere else, and the media shifts its attention. But even in the legal community. Well, like there's some things like, for example, ECHR. Right. If you're going to file with them, you have a, a statute of limitations, which is six months. Mm. There's statutes of limitations. Um, I'm not saying that um, I don't know where we're going to go because we actually don't bring lawsuits. Uh, we gather this evidence and give it to the people who are actually pursuing cases or will pursue cases like the ICJ. Now with the Rome Statute and the ICC, that's a new avenue as well. Um, but we are not party to these courts um, so we hand it over to those who are going to use it for the proper purposes. We do not allow our evidence to, it's completely controlled. It doesn't go to anyone unless it's completely approved by our organization because there's the purpose has to be approved. We're not allowing it to be used for propaganda. We won't allow it to be used for political purposes. We won't give it to partisan groups. You have to have a valid legal purpose or educational or historic purpose for us to turn over evidence. And even then, we only turn over what we think is relevant to the purpose that they're seeking it for. Gasse, you mentioned the diaspora. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, here's an organization that was born in the diaspora by a group of uh, Armenian lawyers 
who were concerned, who understood the importance of collecting this testimony and this evidence. And a lot of uh, incredible initiatives in Armenia have been found and are being led by diasporans today. Um, what can the diaspora be doing now? Stop building churches. Stop putting money into food boxes so you feel better about it. The number of people who said, where do I send my money? I want to send my used clothes and shoes. And I was like, keep it. Put your money in organizations that are going to take your $1 and multiply it by $1,000. That's how this works. Those organizations are well-defined. The diaspora has a lot of money. Um, the diaspora has a lot of brains, has a lot of experience. One of the failures of the 33 years of the Republic of Armenia, and I say this for every single administration that's come to power in this country, Armenia proper, is that they have never passed legislation to make diasporans equal partners in leadership in this country. They ask for expertise, they ask for money, but they don't make us an equal partner. And that way, what happens is the diaspora is not a vested party in the statehood of Armenia. They're a vested party as Armenians ethnically. We eat the same food, we speak the same language, we like the same music. But if you are actually a part of the statehood, which means government and legislative bodies, executive bodies, judicial bodies, economic partners, this country does not have that type of legislation in order to become a part of any of that. You have to apply for a passport that takes over a year. Um, and then you have to be, yeah, I think you have to live in this country for 10 years. Um, those are obstacles where generations are going by and the diaspora is not a vested party of the statehood of this country. I will use Israel as the model and other Baltic countries where after independence in some of the Baltic countries, they invited their diasporan experts and put them in positions where they have executive and legislative thinking vested. Don't tell the diaspora, give us the money, we'll take care of it. And diaspora, stop giving money to food boxes. The Raga Party today is not going to starve in Armenia. We don't let each other starve. The Raga Party today needs land in order to um, farm, to start agriculture, and the units of Gharapa, which means the clans or the villages, need to be placed together in order for their um, traditions and ethnic habits uh, and language to be practiced. So if you take people from Hadrut, don't put them in 500 different places invest in land so that those curatsis, those farmers, those agriculture people live together and they maintain their togetherness. So they're, and, and so a diasporan would say, okay, how do I do that, right? This is where I mean the statehood has also failed the diaspora. Yeah, anyway, those are and, some and, ideas. <laughs> no, they're they're fantastic ideas. And and as a diasporan who lives in Armenia for over two decades, you really have to push your way into those structures. Uh, so I I hear <laughs> what you're saying uh, very clearly, uh, Gasia Apgarian. Thank you uh, so much. I know you're extremely busy with very uh, important, valuable national work that you're doing. And uh, for those who are interested to know more about uh, the organization that you advise, is the Center for Truth and Justice. I've seen firsthand some of the work that you're doing, and it's highly appreciated. And hope you continue in that mission. I have one thing. May I just send a message? out sure this is not the end 
No. This is the beginning of a very, very hard period for us. So my diasporan compatriots, don't use this as an opportunity to throw your hands up and get frustrated and say, I'm done. Uh, more than ever, get involved now, double down. Um, I've had days where I've said, I'm done, but it lasts a few hours. So um, get engaged. The statehood of Armenia. I just want to say one thing. Without Armenia, diaspora doesn't exist. Without Armenia, I don't have a language. Without Armenia, I don't have my mountains. This is where I'm Armenian. Not in the United States, not in France, not in Italy, not in Argentina. And the Armenians of Artsakh don't have a choice. They have to keep going like all of us. And that is the important message, I think. They can't turn away. It's their lives. I have one message for the Artsakh Armenians. They should feel good that they got to escape to the homeland. The Armenians from uh, 1915 had to end up in Odar Apir, not in a homeland, but in foreign lands where they didn't speak the language and no one cared about them and they were honestly poor orphans. So the good news is the statehood of Armenia matters because it saved Artsakhsis, they got to come to the homeland, the mainland. <laughs> the mainland. Well, on that note, Thank you again, Garcia. Thank you.